All right, turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 10. This week and next week will be in John chapter 10. And then I want to take, leading up to our missions conference at the end of October, we're going to go through the book of Jonah and how he was one of the best and worst missionaries of all time. So, but today we'll be in John chapter 10. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, we're going to be on page 896. One of the most used metaphors or word pictures used in the Bible throughout both Old and New Testament is the idea of a shepherd and sheep. Uh, If you've been a believer for even a short time, you have heard at least one verse that deals with someone being a shepherd or being used metaphorically uh, with sheep. You think about it, some of the greatest heroes of the Bible, some of the greatest leaders in the history of God's people, Moses and David, both started out as shepherds. So the greatest lawgiver and the greatest king both started out in a field with some sheep. In the New Testament, the leaders of the church, the elders, are told to shepherd the flock of God under the chief shepherd, Jesus. And in fact, our word pastor comes from the Latin word for shepherd. It probably culminates in the 23rd Psalm, where God is described as our shepherd. Today, and central to John chapter 10, is this idea of shepherd and sheep. And Jesus is going to pick up on this theme that runs throughout our entire Bibles, the idea of a shepherd to help us understand more about him and what he came to do. So as we look at John chapter 10 this week and into next week, at the center of this chapter is Jesus as shepherd and his people as sheep. And so our big idea, if you're following along in your outline, is this. Jesus is the shepherd who died for his sheep who follow his voice in faith and obedience. So let's begin looking at John chapter 10. We're going to start with the first verse, uh, first six verses here where Jesus is going to talk about general truths about shepherding. So let's look, starting at verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, this man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Jesus builds upon the normal understanding of the people of his time. Now, whether they were shepherds or not, they knew these things were true. Here's the general truth. The person who enters the sheepfold, enters the sheep pen by hopping over the fence 
is either going to kill or steal the sheep. They're a thief and a robber. In contrast, the other general truth, the person who enters the sheepfold by the door is the shepherd. Today we might think the person who enters the house through the front door owns the house. But if you're breaking in through the window, you're more than likely, unless you locked your keys out, you're more than likely a thief and a robber. Again, just a general, simple truth. In verses 3 to 5, he gives another one. So he says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Again, a general truth that seems pretty self-evident. The sheep follow their shepherd. They know him. They know his voice. But if there is a stranger, if there is a thief and a robber, they're not going to follow. Sort of the, what we might call today, stranger danger, like we tell kids. Again, just a general, simple truth. The real shepherd, the sheep follow him because they know him. And that's where we get to verse 6. Now, it's okay to laugh a little at this because it's a little funny. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus is speaking in metaphor, and John tells us nobody got it. Now, thankfully for us and for them, chapter 10 doesn't end there, but continues on in verse 7. So Jesus moves from just standard truth about shepherds and sheep And now we'll start talking about himself using those same ideas, but in these verses gives more of an explanation. So we move from truth about sheep or a shepherd to the truth about the good shepherd. So let's start in verses 7 to 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So again, Jesus is using the language of a shepherd and sheep. Jesus starts off this section by calling himself a door. Now, what do we learn about doors? If you go through the door, that's the right way, that's the way that you're supposed to go. But if you hop the fence, that's not the way to do it. That's the illegal way. Okay, so, Jesus is saying that he is the entrance to God's pack of sheep. To get to a safe place, 
sheep pen, or to go in and out, as he says in verse 9, to find pasture, that he is the entrance. He is the way into the sheep pen. Now, what does he mean by that? That's where verse 10 comes in. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus presents himself as the entrance to life. Go back to verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. So Jesus saves to life, and not just any life, but life abundant. So, what does this mean for us? Number one, in calling himself the door, Jesus says, I am the only way for life. Because as we saw in the six verses, to go in, to enter the sheepfold from any other way besides the gate, shows you don't belong. So Jesus says, I am the entrance. I'm the only entrance. I am the right gate. But then we need to understand when he says abundant life, what does he mean? And let me start with this. There are a million ways to understand this incorrectly. And there are probably many ways you've seen, even in print and in books, that want to tell you the abundant life is being rich. That if you just have enough faith, you can have the abundant life, which means you own your own corporate jet. And there may or may not be some people out in this world who will pass the offering plate another couple times so that they can get a corporate jet. Not naming names, but we all know what I'm saying. And it's true that that many people are given large amounts of money in their life. And that if we understand the sovereignty of God, that, that God is sovereign even in that. But it must mean more. Because Jesus was never rich. Paul was never rich. So it cannot be limited to that. Here's what I think it is. Number one, there's an aspect to Jesus not only gives life today, but he gives life into eternity. So you think of abundancy, never ending. So our life, if we are in Christ, never ends. Therefore, it's abundant. But I don't think it even can be just that. There is a joy in the abundant life that Jesus came to give us because we believe in Jesus now, not just in heaven. So what can that mean? I think the other aspect, again, there's the aspect of eternity, but there's an aspect now that we can experience joy when we have been reconciled to the God who created us through Christ. And there's a sense in which we experience joy and hope and love when we have a relationship with the God who created us to have that relationship. 
The abundant life that Jesus gives is you get to live as you were created to live. And sometimes that'll mean a lot of money. A lot of times it won't. (laughs) But what it means every time is that we've been reconciled, been forgiven of our sins, and reconciled to the God who created us. And so I can have joy whether I have a lot of money or I don't. Whether I own a corporate jet or if I don't. (laughs) We can have joy in all things when we are reconciled to the God who loved us and created us and sent his son to die for us. That's the abundant life. Do you see how it's bigger than stuff? Do you see how it's bigger than a comfortable retirement? But it can only come through Christ. About this, one author writes, As the good shepherd, Jesus gives his sheep not merely enough, but more than plenty. And when I think we get into trouble, is we forget how much we have. Another time, Jesus once says, He who loves little has been forgiven little. And he who loves much has been forgiven much. Now, the irony in that story is that everyone who's been forgiven has been forgiven much. (laughs) Here's our problem. I think we feel we've been forgiven little because we think we're hot stuff. When we don't understand the abundant life that Jesus gives us, part of it is because we don't understand and we forget how much he really has given us. From this, Jesus uh, continues on in verse 11. So Jesus called himself a door. And now in verse 11, he calls himself the good shepherd. Look at verses 11 and 13 with me. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, Jesus uses this very familiar word picture of a shepherd taking care of sheep. And in Jesus calling himself the good shepherd, why is he the good shepherd? Jesus is the good shepherd because he dies for his sheep. In contrast with the hired help. So here Jesus is presenting two different groups. He's presenting Jesus as the good shepherd and this group of not the good shepherd. (laughs) The hired hand. And what separates them? What does he say? He who is the hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I think the best understanding of this group of hired hands is... Historically, there were wicked leaders among God's people. 
And on top of that, there were people who claimed falsely that they were the promised Savior. We have historical evidence of false messiahs who came and said, I'm the one that God sent. But since they weren't Jesus, they were wrong. And they led the people astray. The difference between them is one of caring for the sheep. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd because I don't run away in danger. In fact, I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus loved his people so that when they were in trouble, he died for them. Now, let me turn that and focus that a little bit. If you're a follower in Jesus, Jesus did not leave you in your sin and the punishment that that sin deserved. You were not just like a sheep in front of wolves. You were in danger of eternal damnation. Jesus did not leave you there because he is the good shepherd and he loves you. And what he did, he didn't just give some teachings. He didn't just say some nice things, some rules for life that you should follow. Because that wouldn't be loving. Apart from him sacrificing himself for you. Like a shepherd who saves his sheep from the wolves, Jesus laid down his life for us taking the punishment we deserved. That's what separates him from the hired hands, the ones who do not care for the sheep. So it raises a question of how do we know who is a sheep of Jesus? How do you know if you're a sheep of Jesus? Look at verses 14 to 16. Again, Jesus repeats, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Now, this idea of knowing here is to present an idea of relationship. That's all he's saying. Jesus is saying, I have a relationship with those who are my own, and they have a relationship with me. But look how he describes that relationship. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus shows the depth of his relationship with us in creating an analogy between his relationship and God the Father. There is a depth to this relationship that cannot be replicated anywhere. And Jesus then repeats how this is even possible. How can I be in relationship with the God of the universe? Verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, Jesus brings us back to the cross where he died and rose again for our sins to bring us back to God. But in verse 
16, he, he gets into more of who these sheep are. So he begins with, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Most commentators agree that this is in reference to what will happen later in the church where the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, goes to every nation, not just the Jews. Jesus here gives his people a taste of this isn't just for the Jewish people. Jesus is the Savior of all people. What I think Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, my death not only creates a relationship between the believer and me, but it creates a community that is representative of all people in all places. Jesus is preparing his people that they're not it. And again, this is something that needs to catch our attention. That God is bringing people to faith in Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. Jesus is not just the Savior of America. Jesus is not just the Savior of this church. Jesus is the Savior of every type of person around the world. No matter what language they speak, no matter what country they are in, or what that country's view of Christianity is. Again, as we focus on our relationship with Christ, we cannot help but see that creates a relationship with others. So we have brothers and sisters in Christ who literally live a world away. If you drill the hole, which I know engineers, you can't do this, but if you literally drill the hole through the earth, straight through, and got on the very opposite end of the world you'd find brothers and sisters in Christ. We need a bigger understanding of who Jesus is. He's not just my Savior. He is the Savior of the world. But how do we know? How do I know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. How do we know who a sheep is? How do I know if I'm a sheep? Do I listen to the voice of Jesus? If I don't, I don't belong to him. The Christian understanding of obedience is this. Obedience does not create salvation. You cannot be good enough. No matter how good you are, and some of you are amazing. Even you can't. But, here is what is so clear in your Bible. That you show yourself to be a follower of Jesus in obeying what he has said as an act of love and obedience. Again, I've used this analogy before, 
But if you were on trial to be, for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The evidence would come of, do you actually obey what Jesus has, has said? But it is this following of Jesus, this following his voice in faith and obedience that creates one flock and one shepherd. What unites people around the world under Jesus is responding to his voice in faith and obedience. And that's what unifies. That's what should unify us. And sadly, we want other things to unify us. But what really should unify us is our faith in Christ and our obedience to him. Now at this point in the text, in verse 17 and 18, Jesus returns to the idea of laying down his life. Now you need to remember everything before the crucifixion in John and in the other Gospels happens before the crucifixion. I know that's a really profound statement. We know the rest of the story, but a part of John is preparing the disciples and the followers of Jesus for the crucifixion because the idea of a crucified Messiah does not make sense to the people of that time. Jesus had to re-educate the people at that time. So in verse 17 and 18, Jesus comes back to this idea of laying down his life. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying, the death that is going to happen is going to be because I let it happen. Now you see this, it pops up every once in a while in history, this idea that Jesus didn't know the crucifixion was going to happen. Okay, that's a lie. They're like, oh, Jesus just got so popular and they killed him, but he didn't want to die. No, the Bible's pretty clear. He voluntarily laid down his life. But notice here what Jesus says he also does and has the authority to do. I have the authority to take it up again. Here is a whisper of the resurrection. And we're only in John chapter 10. Jesus is helping us understand that it is in his death and resurrection, his willing death and resurrection, and that who has the authority over life and death but God himself. And so these verses, while they can feel like a parenthesis in the story, are important to how Jesus understands his death and resurrection. That he loved his people so much that he willingly died, but because he was God, he was able to rise again and complete our salvation. You see, your salvation was never in any doubt 
Because Jesus says here, I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it up again. Nothing was going to stop the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus wasn't worried, oh, I hope this works. And that same security is yours. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry if it's going to work. Because Jesus has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. There is a security that we have that no other religion has. I was listening to, um, we'll call him a news pundit who is Jewish. And he was talking about Yom Kippur coming up because it happens this month, the Day of Atonement. And in his mind as a modern Jew, he says we go to synagogue and we pray that God might atone for our sins. This man is an Orthodox Jew, but even he cannot say, I know that my sins have been paid for. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, the security that you have in Christ. It's a wonderful culmination of John chapter 10. But what you need to see in this is that those who place their faith in Christ will be saved. And as we'll see next week, no one can snatch them out of the hand of Jesus. And so... Again, that's a part of that abundant life. That I am secure in my salvation in Christ. That I have the freedom to live a life of obedience because I know my sins have been paid for. Now, John ends 19 and 20, or John chapter 10 ends with verses 19 to 21. And as we've seen before, there's division of opinion about Jesus. And I think one of the reasons John does this ever so often in his writing is to point people to this idea of decision. Who are you going to say that Jesus is? In fact, he says at the end of the book, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of the whole book. And he gives us points like this where the people are wondering, who is this guy? Because that's the same question for us. Who do you say he is? Look at verses 19 and 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them says he has a demon and it is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? in showing you the full spectrum of opinions about Jesus from he's a demonic nut to he's sent by God because he did a miracle. In showing you that full spectrum, John gives you the same choices. Is he who he says he is? Or is he a lunatic? When John shows these, us these opinions, 
he presents us with the choice ourselves. And the question remains for us today. Who do you say Jesus is? Let me close our time with two quick points of application. Number one, follow the voice of Jesus. How do I know I belong to Jesus? I follow his voice in faith and I follow his voice in obedience. This means that when Jesus speaks, we listen and change. I once heard an interesting turn of phrase. On a lot of signs, you'll see, come as you are. Right? You see this on a lot of church signs. And I think that's, I understand what they're trying to say. Like, come on in. We welcome you. But I once heard somebody say, to put a twist on it, he says, come as you are, but don't leave like you came. Christianity is about transformation. Following Jesus is about becoming more like Jesus, and to become more like Jesus, guess what? You're going to have to change. <laughs> we follow a shepherd. Jesus left us his voice in the Bible. And if we truly belong to him, we will follow his voice in faith and obedience. And secondly, enter the gate that is Jesus and find life. There is a gate. It is open as we've seen for people all over the world, in every country, tribe, and nation. But there is only one gate. Jesus wants to give you the abundant life. A life of joy and hope and love of being reconciled to the God who created you. Of your sins forgiven and having the hope of not just life today, but life forever. Jesus invites you to walk through the gate of faith. To place your personal trust in him. And if you've never done that, I would love to talk to you after the service about what that would look like in your life. Of taking that first step of faith in Jesus Christ and finding the life that he's offering you. A life that will never disappoint from now into eternity. Friends, today we saw Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep and he calls us to place our trust in him and to follow him when we hear his voice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word where we hear the voice of Jesus, that we would follow that voice in faith and obedience, and that we would seek out the life that you offer, the joy that you offer, that comes not in 
having stuff and things, but by having a relationship with the God of the universe through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.